0: This passage before us has been dealt with uh, many different ways, some better ways and some worse ways. Uh, Let's start with some of the worst ways, making this uh, some kind of a a myth, some kind of an invention of a later author who who wants to include it, uh, not necessarily as a factual story, but as a symbol of how Jesus is a wonderful person. It's plain, just from a cursory reading of the text, that John doesn't intend for us to understand it this way. He says, he starts by saying, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And then afterwards he says, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Clearly whoever put this in, and we believe it is the author of the Gospel, John, isn't intending for us to take this as an allegory or like as a symbolic thing or something like that. It's a historic event. Jesus turned water into wine. Other ways that it's been handled which are I think not supported by the text uh, would be to see this as foreshadowing of the resurrection and that's basically based on the idea that in verse 1 he says on the third day and Those who argue this point say that we're supposed to infer from that that, well, after knowing from our first reading of the Gospel of John that Jesus rose on the third day, then the next time we read it, we're supposed to see this as a foreshadowing of the resurrection. I don't really think that that's exegetically supported. Another way that some have handled it is that there's six water jars, which is one short of the number of completion, which is seven. And so Jesus brings things to completion. That's a true enough idea, but I don't think that that's really what this is intending to convey. Not least because the miracle that Jesus does is not add a seventh water jar to bring things to completion, but change the water into wine. And so you still have six water jars even after the miracle happened. And so obviously a number of things have been put forward and we're going to do our best to look and see what's supported here in the text and, uh, and what we can say with more exegetical soundness about this event but let's just recap because we might not at face value even get the facts of the story right there are a few comments that I think are pertinent for me to make before we even try to interpret this just that we understand this so, Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. And the wine runs out. Alright. A commentator named Leon Morris says that this would have been a pecuniary liability for the bridegroom. That means a financial liability. From Leon Morris's research, it seems to him that weddings were even more, there was even more pressure on having a nice wedding then than now. Because Morris says that if you didn't provide a feast of a certain standard, then the extended family of the bride would sue you. They would file a lawsuit, and you'd be on the hook as the groom for not having provided a good enough feast. Other commentators say there's some evidence for that, but they're not quite as sure as Leon Morris is. In any case, we can at least understand As um, is kind of common sense but as Gordon Keddy, among others would say there at least would be offense caused and it would be at least an incident that would affect relationships so if the wedding really gets messed up uh, obviously there's going to be some tension and some, some awkwardness at least at the relational level so depending on what degree of pressure this was there was some pressure on the groom who should have provided enough wine Uh, according to his society's expectations for all of the guests at the wedding. So with that in mind, we should note here that Jesus is not simply entertaining everyone with his special powers. He's not just doing a parlor trick. Jesus changing the water into wine is an act of compassionate benevolence. We should understand that as we read this story. Then... Jesus' mother goes to him and says, they have no wine. Remember, Mary had a visitation from an angel. The shepherds came and told her what the angels had said to them. And she knew that Jesus was special. And so she goes to Jesus asking him to do something about this. Obviously, Exercising a measure of confidence in Jesus that he can actually do something about this. Who could blame her? And then Jesus' reply might really startle us. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? We need to understand as we go through that woman wouldn't have sounded so offensive to her or even to people who overheard him say that to her as it might seem to us. If my wife came and asked me something and I said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? We would interpret that to be a fairly rude and insensitive reply. It's not necessarily so, apparently. It's, it is, however, a, a term of a little bit of distance. Maybe something like sir. right? And so, so if, if I went to my wife and asked something and, and she said, I don't know sir. I mean, that would be strange, but it wouldn't really be impolite per se. But there would be a little bit of relational distance conveyed. It's not sweetheart or something like that. What Jesus is doing here is helping Mary to understand that he's on earth to be more than her little boy. That he has a public function. That Jesus' identity is not fundamentally Mary's son. But he has a mission to carry out. He has a responsibility from God to carry out. And so he's, he's putting this arm's length distance between himself and his mother. Saying, I'm not really here to do your will, mom but I'm here to do God's will. That I'm functioning now as a grown man, not in obedience to you, my mother, but in obedience to God, my father. And that is what is in view when he says, following on the heels of that response, my hour has not yet come. He's basically saying I'm not going to do whatever I'm going to do on your timing. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do on my timing. We'll remember later when his brothers ask if he's going to the feast, and Jesus says, not yet. Right? But then he goes. right? Because the point that he's making with his mother and with his brothers is, I don't jump when you say jump. I jump when my Heavenly Father says jump. So that's what he's saying here in this section. So it's just a little... It's a polite, but a firm response. Like, Mom, I'm not here to do your will. I'm not your little boy. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm going to act in that function, in that capacity. John Calvin says, He reproves his mother for unseasonable haste, but on the other hand, gives reason to expect a miracle. Isn't that true? He, says, he doesn't say, No, I'm not going to do it. He says, It's just not the right time yet, Mom. So then she goes, and says to the servant, do whatever he tells you. So she accepts, she accepts this gentle reproof. But she still is confident that he can do something about it. And she's emboldened by his response to think that he is actually going to do something about it. And so she goes and says, do whatever he tells you. <clears throat> then the jars... For the Jewish rites of purification. It's not clear whether these rites of purification. Were the things prescribed in the law. In other words they were God ordained rites of purification. Or whether they were man made rites of purification. You remember in Mark chapter 7. As well as an account in Matthew. Jesus and his disciples eat with unwashed hands. In a way that is. Frowned upon in Jewish society, but in a way that's not actually violating any of God's laws. And Jesus rebukes those who are his critics in that situation, saying, You teach as doctrines the commandments of men. So we know by this time that the Jews had made up some additional things on top of what God had said, This is what you have to do. The Jews had come up with some of their own rights, which were basically man-made. So we don't know whether these were rites of purification, whether these jars were for rites of purification instituted by God, or whether these were for rites of purification instituted by the Jews. But in any case, we understand that that was their purpose there. There was water there for some ceremonial washing. The servants take out some of the water now become wine and bring it to the master of the feast now what's the master of the feast's role in this story why is he included in the retelling of this why doesn't John just tell us that Jesus turned some water into wine and leave it at that but he, he relates this detail that the ma- they brought the wine to the master of the feast and then there's this comment from the master of the feast. We're going to look at the Master of the Feast comment in a few minutes. But his role, who it was, who he was is significant to us in that he was the most qualified person there in terms of his expertise of how good the wine was. This is what uh, Herman Ritterbus suggests to us in his commentary. He adds an objective, verifiable dimension to this story. So it's not just... It doesn't just say, Jesus turned the water into wine. And then the guests were like, oh, this is great. Right? Because we remember that they've already had some wine. So their judgment might be called into question. But they bring it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast says, this wine is excellent. It's the best. And so he adds this objective, verifiable dimension to this story. So that's, that's what happened. And... Not all of that is sitting right on the face of the text. So I wanted to go back and make those comments before we investigate the significance of this event. Now let's consider what is the significance. And before we come to the primary significance, I want to consider two incidental and secondary points of significance to this story. The first has to do with Mary's relationship to Jesus and the role that some assign her as a mediatrix, one who is a mediator between us and Jesus. So, first of all, the passage which tells us there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That should indicate to us then there's not another mediator, right? Because one plus one is not one. One plus one is two. And it doesn't say there are two mediators between God and men. So right there, we should know that already. But Don Carson comments like this. He says, some interpreters have detected in Mary's successful request for a solution to the shortage of wine, sufficient reason to treat her as a mediatrix between us and her son. On this reasoning, one wonders why everyone who ever asked Jesus to help and found in him the solution to some pressing need should not be elevated to the status of mediator or mediatrix. In other words, there's there's absolutely nothing in this text to make us think that Mary is some kind of mediatrix who goes between us and Jesus. So, since this is a passage that people of that persuasion often use in defense of that doctrine, it just bears noting as we go by in passing that this text has gives no ground whatsoever to that understanding mary is in need of jesus let us note in this story just like everyone else and in fact even jesus rebuke to her should indicate to us that mary is not acting in a special and privileged capacity in the story jesus is actually basically telling her the opposite I'm not going to do this just because you're my mom. The second secondary observation that we should make is that Jesus turns water into wine, not Welch's grape juice. Alright? We've chosen at our church to use grape juice in the celebration of communion. We believe that the scripture prescribes the fruit of the vine. We don't think that it has to have a certain age, a certain fermentation in order to celebrate communion according to God's prescription. And so for other reasons, we've just decided to use grape juice in our celebration of communion, like many other churches have also chosen to do. But it's certainly not because we believe wine is sinful in and of itself. We see in this text... In the Master of the Feast comment in verse 10... Everyone serves the good wine first... And when people have drunk freely... Then the poor wine... Okay... What does that indicate to us? It indicates to us that the common practice was... To save money... You don't buy 100% of the best wine... You buy, you buy a number of cases of the best wine... And then you buy some discount cases. And when everybody drank the best cases, then you bring out the discount cases. And we understand why that is. Right? It's because it's common for people to drink too much wine and have their judgment impaired. And so what we see is that Jesus turning the water into wine happens in the context of wine drinking as it occurred in the first century in Israel. And wine drinking as it occurred in the first century in Israel wasn't, well, just grape juice drinking. It was the kind of drinking that after the best cases of wine are gone impairs the judgment of the guests. So what we understand here is that Jesus turned the water actually into wine, not into grape juice. And it should go without saying, but I'm not condoning drunkenness and neither was Jesus. Drunkenness is elsewhere in the scripture prohibited. But uh, just like when you pay your employees, you're not responsible for what they do with their money. Jesus turns water into wine, but doesn't thereby relieve them of any moral obligations to God as to what they do with that wine. But he acts in compassionate benevolence to help out this groom who has run out of wine and creates more wine for the wedding. James Montgomery Boyce uh, has this comment on this passage, which I think is somewhat, somewhat unrelated, but somewhat related. So I'll just say it and let you make of it what you will. He says, Some Christians go along with grim looks and long faces. If they find themselves in the company of someone else who is having a good time, they immediately expect that the cause of the fun is illegal or immoral. Jesus was not like that. He didn't condemn those who were enjoying themselves. So again, Jesus is not condoning drunkenness here, but they ran out of wine. It's a festive occasion. It's supposed to be cause for celebration, not anxiety and stress and the disruption of social uh, relationships and so on and so forth. So he acts compassionately and benevolently. Jesus is not uh, um, n- not one that James Montgomery Boyce describes here, we could say. So quite the opposite of the scripture teaching that wine is sinful, and then us therefore believing that wine is sinful, here we move to the primary significance of the story. Because after all, the primary significance of the story probably has something to do with the wine, right? Listen here to Mark Johnson. He says, The astonishment of the master of the banquet at the best wine being saved till last is a commentary not on the days of the feast, but on the history of the world. God, in His dealings with the human race and with His people, had saved the best wine until now, the time when He sent His Son And ushered in his kingdom. We are to see in this passage something of Jesus' glory as the best wine. Jesus is the best wine. Wine is far from being condemned roundly as a sinful thing in and of itself. In the Old Testament, often even connected to the glory of the coming messianic age. Let's look at a few of those instances together. Isaiah 25 and verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Again, it's not grape juice. It's aged. A feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. And of rich food full of marrow. And of aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Of God showing up to save His people. Is feasting. Rich food. Rich food full of marrow. With well-aged wine. Jeremiah 31 and verse 12. Let me just begin, though, at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. Over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. And they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance. And the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. Declares the Lord. Again. The prosperity of the Messianic age includes God's people rejoicing over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. And then Amos, chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. You know the image there? It means they're still bringing in last year's harvest when they're trying to plant a new seed. They haven't been able to gather it all up yet. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. In view of these things, what we are to understand as Jesus turns water into wine, and as he does so explicitly as a sign. After all, John chapter 2 verse 11 says this, the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. As Jesus turns hundreds of liters of water into wine, as He creates an abundance of wine, as a sign, what are we to make of that? we are to make of that that the Messianic age has come. That the Messiah has come. And that the Messianic age is better. That the Messiah, Jesus, is better. In that sense, the wine is a symbol of Jesus Himself. The betterness of the wine over the water and the betterness of The wine that Jesus made over even the wine that has been served. It's to show us that Jesus ushering in the messianic age is the best the world's ever had. That's the primary significance of this story. Jesus is superior over what has gone before. Certainly, he's superior over man-made Jewish tradition. We alluded to that already. He's certainly superior over the man-made rules of purification that the Jews had imposed on one another. He's certainly superior to that. These are commandments of men. At worst, legalistic. At worst, getting the cart before the horse, getting things backwards. At worst, getting the focus off where it should be, the... Doctrine of God in favor of the commandments of men. At worst, all of these things. But at best, at best, just a gesture of honor to God. Jesus is certainly better than those kinds of things. But we're on firm ground to say that Jesus is even better than the God-ordained rites and rituals of the Old Covenant. We're on firm ground biblically to say that the New Covenant is better than the Old. Jeremiah 31 foreshadows that and Hebrews 8 makes it explicit. It's, it's better, it's superior, it's founded on better promises... Even John in his gospel has told us that already. I dealt with it at sermon length a number of weeks ago, and so I'm not going to rehash the issue. But this contrast between Moses and Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 and verse 17 tells us that what Jesus brings is better than what Moses brought. Even though Moses brought it at the institution of God. The comparison is not between bad and good when we think about the Old Covenant and the New. As we think about Moses and Jesus Christ. The comparison is not between bad and good. But the comparison is between good and better. Or partial and full. As I said at the beginning, though we don't get it exegetically from the number of purification jars... It's true that Jesus brings to completion that which was partial. Brings to fulfillment that which God had promised. And so Jesus is better even than the God-ordained Jewish laws that were operative in the Old Covenant and therefore operative at this time. Now here's where I want to draw some implications for us. If Jesus is better than the God-ordained Jewish law, then Jesus is better than everything that had gone before in any nation. Because the Old Covenant was the best thing going in its heyday there wasn't anything better in the land of the Philistines there wasn't anything better in the land of the Ammonites Yahweh was not one God among many who offered some blessings and some benefits but if you you wanted you could shop around and find another God who might be as good or better So if Jesus is better even than the God-ordained rites and rituals of the Old Covenant, then Jesus is better than anything that had gone before in the whole course of human history. Which is why Mark Johnson, who I quoted earlier, said that the commentary, you saved the best till now, isn't just a commentary on the feast, but is meant in its place, in its context in John's Gospel. To help us see that God has saved the best till now. And that He's now giving us the best in Jesus. There was no better God. There was no even equal God. Yahweh makes that clear in His words and His deeds throughout the Old Testament. How many times do you read, For my own sake I do this. For my sake I do this. My glory I will not share with another. How many times do you read stuff like that? He's concerned for us to know that. There's salvation nowhere else. Now obviously Gentiles were saved. Some Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament. We can think of Naaman or the Ninevites. There were exceptions to the rule that only in Israel were people saved. But even in the exceptions to the rule... The people that were saved had an encounter with Israel's God. So we can say that the Old Covenant was the best thing going in its heyday. And if Jesus is even better than that, if fullness comes not through Moses, but through Christ, if fullness of grace and truth, from which we all receive, from which we all draw, comes not through Moses, but through Jesus Christ. If He is neither the water nor the first batch of wine, but if He's like the second wine, if this sign bears any resemblance to that which it signifies, then we're going to say, we're forced to say, we're compelled to say from the text that Jesus is better than anything that's gone before. Now, if Jesus is superior to everything that's gone before, Including God's own system. And if in Jesus God has given us the fullness of that which he intends to give us. From his fullness we have all received. Jesus is full of grace and truth. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, even as we um Of me, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, even in Colossians, it says, The full in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we saw that that's a dispensary communicative fullness, as John Gill said, it's for us, he's full in order that he might pour out from his fullness upon us. If Jesus is the fullness of what God has to give us, then there's nothing better outside. Of God's dealings with mankind. And there's nothing better than God's dealings. Better than Jesus inside of God's dealings. With mankind. And so Jesus is then not only superior to everything that comes before him. But Jesus is superior to everything that comes after him. Jesus is the fullness of God's goodness to us. there is no goodness of God that supersedes Jesus. Even as we saw a few weeks ago as I was preaching on Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of the Holy Spirit doesn't supersede Jesus. It's through Jesus that we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus and all that comes to us in Him is the fullness of what God has for us. There's no next thing coming after Jesus. Jesus is, as I've said before, the last station on the train track. The train stops there and everybody has to get off because it's not going further. If Jesus is better than everything that went before, and Jesus is the fullness of God's dealings with us, then Jesus is better also than everything that comes after In summary of everything I've said so far then, let me repeat what I said to you a few minutes ago. Jesus is the best the world's ever had. Jesus is the best the world could ever have. Jesus and all that comes to us in Him, through Him, by Him, in the covenant which He mediates. Jesus is the best the world's ever had. Nothing Satan has come up with has been better. Sin is not better than God. Nothing we've come up with has been better. You can think of maybe things that are not sinful but things that we've done or invented, maybe technology, communication, cell phones, travel, whatever. You can you can use your imagination. Nothing we've come up with has been better. And none of God's gifts have even been better. Again, as I, as I just said, Jesus is the fullness of what God has for us. And everything that comes through Him. He's the last stage of redemptive history. Where God's not making more promises about future ages but is bringing to fulfillment that which He's promised since the beginning. None of God's gifts even have been better. Whether it be family, friends, whether it be the tabernacle, sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, whatever it be, none of God's gifts have been better. Jesus and all that comes to us in Him is better than anything else. God has saved the best wine till now. In Jesus we receive forgiveness. We have sinned against God. We've broken His commandments. We have by any biblical measure any way that you want to talk about God's standards whether you want to talk about the Ten Commandments we've broken them. Whether you want to talk about the two great commandments of love for God and neighbor, we've broken them. Whether you want to just literally list all of the imperatives in Scripture, we've broken them. We have sinned against God. We've incurred God's judgment. We deserve to be punished for our sin. And we are undeserving, of course, of meriting any blessing from Him. But Jesus has come. And answered the demands of the law upon us. Jesus has come and obeyed for us. Jesus has come and borne in himself the penalty that we deserve for our sin. and So that on Jesus' merit we are blessed. And by Jesus' death, God's wrath is propitiated. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Where he pours out upon us all of the blessings of the new covenant. Nothing is better than that. We have not only forgiveness, but a new nature. God changes our hearts, makes us increasingly what we should be. He changes our fundamental desires and then He works with us throughout the course of our life to make us more and more conformed to the character of His Son. And God is with us. He has said. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. And the author of Hebrews quotes even that Old Testament promise to Joshua. And applies it to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's in Christ by His Spirit, that He is with us. And then we have hope of an eternity with Him and a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of this comes to us through Jesus. We spend our lives chasing good, or perceived good, I should probably say, We spend our lives chasing perceived good. And some of us run to what Satan offers us. Tempts us to. Sin. The thief comes, however, to steal, kill, and destroy. And when we've spent ourselves in his service, we're broken, we're tired, we're worn. We're destitute. And ultimately, we're dead. We chase what our own lusts want. It's not always Satan behind every instance of sin. A demon behind this sin and a demon behind that. Sometimes we just do bad things because we want to do bad things. Certainly before... God gives us new hearts. Our hearts are totally inclined away from God. doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be. But it means that the, all of our faculties are inclined away from God. But even after we are given new hearts, there's remaining corruption that causes us to chase perceived good in sin. And again, we just end up washed out hollow discouraged deceived nothing that God has given us by nature is ultimately satisfying either Whether family, friends, whatever. No human being can bear the weight of our idolatrous desires of what we wish them to be. Nobody will make all of your wildest dreams come true. Nobody. Not your husband or your wife or your fiancé. Not a not a brother, sister, not a friend, not a relative, not a co-worker. The beauty of nature, the richness that God has endowed this world with, is not ultimately satisfying. If we look to these things, we don't come up. destitute the same way as when we perceive, pursue explicitly sinful things. But I mean it's like it looks a little bit different to finish your life after having pursued like family, work ethic, career, uh, owning your own home, driving your own car than it does to pursue a life of, say, like drug trafficking, prostitution, right? You understand what I mean. But you still don't come up satisfied in the end. You might not be as destitute or as washed out as some, if you look kind of on a relative scale. But at the end of the day, it's true what Augustine said, that our hearts are restless, until they find their rest in God. God didn't come to us in Christ Jesus basically to meet our felt needs. In other words, to just scratch wherever it is that we itch. God didn't come to just affirm whatever our desires are and make our wildest dreams come true and whatever. That's... If we say that there's a God-shaped hole in every heart, and we mean that... That's not a biblical statement. But if what we mean is that there really is a void in our being that none but God come to us in Christ Jesus can fill, then that's a profoundly biblical statement. There is a God-shaped hole in every heart. And trying to chase, perceive good, outside of Christ Jesus the fullness that is in him remember he is the he's like the neck of an hourglass or the the base of a funnel the bottom of a funnel the narrow part through which everything good that our triune God desires to give us comes if we're trying to get perceived good without it coming through the funnel we find that in the end, what we perceived as good is not as good as we perceived it to be. That what we thought would be satisfying is not as satisfying as we thought it would be. And we're disappointed, whether it it be by things that are explicitly sinful, or whether it be by things that are permissible in themselves, but just not ultimate, like friends, family, career, whatever. We always come up Short. There was a American football game a number of years ago, the Super Bowl, the championship game, and I realize that that's not a familiar game to most here. But you don't need to understand the intricacies to understand this. There's a line drawn on the field, and you got to get that ball across the line to score a touchdown. And one team was behind and needed to score a touchdown. And on the final play of the game, they made an incredible, incredible play. And one of their players had the ball and was rushing toward the goal line. And one of the defenders came and made an incredible tackle. And the ball carrier stretched out the ball. Because he doesn't have to cross the plane, just the ball. One of the ball carriers, the ball carrier stretched out the ball. And he came up about this short from the goal line. And they lost the Super Bowl. You can imagine, you don't have to enjoy American football to understand the disappointment that he would have felt and that that team would have felt as they came up Short. At best, that's what a life spent chasing perceived good outside of Christ Jesus will be. You think you're making progress. You think you're getting there. You give it all you got. But in the end, you have that same sinking feeling as you stretch that ball out towards the goal line. And come up short. Jesus is the best the world's ever had. The best the world's ever going to have. In Him, all the fullness that God intends to give us was pleased to dwell. From His fullness, we must receive... Grace upon grace. It's His fullness of grace and truth where we need to look for perceived good. It's in Jesus. You need to do something about your sin. You need to do something about its guilt, which places you under condemnation and will land you in hell. You need to do something about your corruption. Which makes inevitably and ultimately you miserable. As well as dishonoring God and blaspheming Him. You need to do something, or you need something done rather, about the presence of sin around you. The sin of other people against you. The curse of sin that is upon this world that causes things like disease and tsunamis. If you want what is ultimately good, which is to be free from that which is ultimately bad, sin, you gotta go to Jesus. It's Him who frees us from the guilt of sin as He offers up His righteous life in the place of our unrighteousness. As His death bears the penalty that we deserve for our sin. As He renews you, regenerates you, and then on an ongoing basis sanctifies you. And it's Him who will return and cast out of His kingdom all evildoers. So that we live in a new heavens and a new earth that are very much like this one, But very much unlike this one, in that it's where righteousness dwells. If you want the best wine, you gotta go to Jesus. And that's what the wine, the miracle of Jesus changing the water into wine, signifies. Remember, it's a sign. It's not a sign pointing away from Jesus in this passage it's a sign pointing to Jesus the result of it was of this sign was that his disciples believed in him it wasn't a sign of something else it wasn't a sign of somebody else it was a sign of him that he is all of the things predicated of him in John chapter 1 it's a sign of him And that's where exegetically we get this idea that Jesus Himself is the best wine. So, brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, Jesus is the best the world's ever had, the best the world's ever going to have. Jesus is like the good wine that God has saved for the end. Jesus is the one who, as the Messiah, ushers in that messianic age. Where there's an abundance of wine. Rich feasting. Jesus is the best and the ultimate of God's goodness to us. Don't settle for less. If you're not a Christian, come in faith to Him. Put your trust in Him for the first time. But even if you are, repent of those low thoughts that you have of Him, at least from time to time. See Him. See Jesus as the best wine. And don't settle for less.